Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Mike, it's just a real pleasure to have you here, and I'd love to get to something that is challenging right away so we can share with our listeners some of the hard stuff that you've overcome, and I'll leave it to you to share the narrative, but what is something in your world that's been very challenging for you in your life, Mike? Take us where you'd like. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges I faced was the death of my father. My parents originally started this business, and I grew up with that. Went off to school, wanted nothing to do with it. And my dad brought me back and him and I joined it for the first couple of years working together in this business. And then overnight, suddenly he passed away. One day he was here with us. One day he was not. He had a stroke caused by a brain tumor. And at that point, because I didn't know a lot of what I was doing, I was a pipsqueak kid. We were a small real estate company. We build and manage apartments. We're, we're working on a new project. And the city at the time actually shut me down twice after my dad's death. And I think the reason they did it primarily is because they looked at me and said, dude, there's no way you can be building these kinds of buildings on your own. And the second time they shut us down, they made me actually hire out a new manager to kind of manage the project that was out there, which I had to get done in a matter of just days, which is a terrible way to hire a key leader. And it was not quite the right fit for us. But I was also really struggling too with my own insecurities. Like, can I do this? Can I really build a building and design it and make this stuff happen in a positive way? And so I was really wrestling internally. And I remember toward the end of the project, it was a struggle. And we had this thousand foot long pipe that was buried 15 feet in the ground. And somewhere in this pipe was a pinhole leak, just tiny little leak. How in the world do we find this? And I was out there for weeks with our excavator. I was in the mud in my nice clothes, getting dirty, kind of shoveling, looking for this tiny leak. We did eventually find it. But then a few days before we were supposed to open, the city staff came out and said, there's no way you guys are opening. What? (laughs) And we worked through the night multiple days. And then the last day, we had half a dozen inspectors for a half a day inspection. And the very last moment, the head building official pulled me aside in the basement and said, Mike, I know we were hard on you, but honestly, looking at where you're at today in this project, this is the nicest building we built in the city. Wow. It's like, ah, finally, finally a moment of like actually feeling like we can do this. But that was sort of the summary of the toughest moments I've gone through. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's so much to unpack. And wow. I've, first of all, sorry to hear that from someone who also lost their father. I lost mine when I was 28. Wow. Yeah. We're very similar. It's sad and that's real life and it happens and it puts you into a position right away where you were tested immediately. 
And I wonder, how did you move forward there in business, not being as experienced, obviously, as you are today? How did you start to pick up the pieces and move forward from that day on? Let's just take it for the next month. How did you get through that next little period of time there, Mike? Yeah, I mean, the death of my father was like being hit by a train. It was just horrible. And so you have the emotional weight there. You've got this project you're working on. You're feeling insecure about everything. Like, I can't do it anyway on my own. All I could do, I almost had to like compartmentalize in my head and kind of separate myself from how I felt and just take one step in front of another going forward and look at, okay, can't think about everything, but what do I solve tomorrow? What do I solve the next day? How do I make little incremental improvements? It's a lot like they talk about eating an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. And that's sort of how I took it. But I think the power in that too is focusing so much on just the next step, at least for that time of my life, helped me also get past the tragedy of losing my father because it helped bring me back to more of a stable emotional point as well. So there's probably some blessing in it. Spoken like a true eternal optimist. The most challenging moments in our lives, what is the blessing? I don't normally lead or ask that question, but I wonder if there is a blessing, you know, what is the positive that may have come from this tragedy, Mike? I think there was a huge positive, actually. Looking back, there was a huge gift in all of that. And I think the key gift is this. I didn't know what I was doing. So that meant we could start questioning everything. If you look at this industry of construction, it's been stuck in its ways for the past 60 years with minimum improvement in labor productivity. If you look at things like manufacturing, they've improved labor productivity by 760%. It's just unreal, the difference. Part of the reason that is, is so many people are stuck in their ways. And so we didn't have a way to be stuck into. We didn't have anyone to tell us no. We started doing things differently in this industry. We started having some significant success from that. But I think the fact that not knowing a lot and being thrust into this actually was a key advantage to helping us see the world differently in the world of construction. Yeah, I love the different lens you put on it. Maybe the the most experienced eyes aren't always the best fit to help us move forward. So I love that you brought a fresh perspective. So great gift there. So thank you for that. If we go back to your feeling when you took control of this large project and the city wasn't cutting you any slack, they were shutting it down. <laughs> you had to go find a pinhole-sized leak underground in the mud. I mean, I don't even know where to begin even thinking about that. But I would ask this. When you first took over and you started to finish that project, what happened after that? Just take us through that next chapter, if you will, that brings us forward. I guess to give me a little bit more depth with my dad, he had a stroke caused by a brain tumor. And so that day when he got his stroke, he, in effect, was no longer himself. He was actually still alive, but mentally he was not there. Yeah, it was You couldn't really communicate with him. He just wasn't the same person. And so he actually did live for six months, but it felt like he was done. So there was still like going to the nursing home, spending time with my dad, connected, even though he wasn't there, it was physically present. And then in the business at that time, so we were shut down twice. And one of the big challenges that happened right about that time too, is we had a block contractor and this block contractor I had lined up, pulled out like a month before they were supposed to start. And if we don't get the block work done, then the precast can't go on and the entire building can't go. And I got a team 
who's coming off another project into this project. And I am at a loss because it is really hard finding contractors. What we ended up doing is we generated, created a list of literally every contractor that could possibly do that work in the Twin Cities. And I just started calling as fast and as hard as I could. I think there was like 70 people on the list. We went down it every day, called all of them. Some of them got back to us with like, yeah, we could do it, but it's going to be like way more than we can afford, like five times what it should cost. I just couldn't afford that. It was like pulling teeth, trying to find anyone to come out. And it was terrifying. I knew if I couldn't pull this off, we'd be in a really, really tough spot. So a couple of weeks into that, I was able to find a block contractor, luckily that could come out. But because of the rush of it all, it turned out I had hired a block contractor that wasn't the best block contractor. And so they ended up installing the blocks around the building. But the way they had done some of the steel reinforcing, they had done it wrong. And so then I had to get a like scan done of the blocks so we could actually like find where the rebar reinforcing was and then reinstalling. And that was the first time the city shut us down and said, dude, what are you guys doing here? You're, you're messing up the rebar. So yeah, that gives you a flair of what's going on during that time. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for adding that extra depth. I know personally, and a number of people I know listen to her show have had parents that have had strokes or, or I'd say I know a couple of them that have dementia and it's just their parents aren't exactly the, the same people they grew up knowing. And I wonder with your father after the stroke, what type of emotional toll or what type of experience did you have over that next few months period with your father who was mentally not there anymore? It was really tough because with part of his stroke, he actually did get a little bit better and then would get worse again. So there's this hope, like, can he actually get better enough to interact in a meaningful way? Can we actually connect with them? So there's this fleeting hope going on, which almost messes with your mind in some sense because you think, well, maybe we can reconnect again. And then it never happened. He never got to that level and then started declining again after that. So I think in some regards, maybe it was a little bit emotionally guarded. I think when he originally had the stroke, that's really when I went through the grieving process of losing my dad. So by the time he did eventually pass away, that moment was less difficult for me because I had sort of processed it much earlier on. Thanks for going there with this, Mike. Man, I respect the heck out of you for being able to share that. And I know that it makes a difference to our listeners. So thank you. Absolutely. I'd love to move forward to what happens next after we get the block contractor situation sorted out and we get the underground pinhole leak fixed and we finally get the building fully built and ready for occupancy. But what do you call that in your industry when it's ready to go? Certificate of occupancy. It's when they have permission to move in. Okay. Okay, good. So you got the certificate of occupancy ready to go. And give us some timeline on this. What date is this about, Mike? Oh, this would have been 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. Okay. Okay. About nine or 10 years ago. So you learned some lessons, you skinned your knees and elbow a little bit there through all that and learned a little bit. So what happened next after that first building project was done? Yeah. So then we started building buildings. That project was called Emberwood. Then we moved on to one of the best financial projects we'd ever done, Gateway Green. And the reason that was is because the landowner struggled to sell the land. It was part of like the 2008 collapse. 
and they had finished the parking lot. They had finished the streets, the sewer, and the water. And it was for a new site for 84 units. And the land only cost us $35,000. To give you some sense to put all the street and the sewer and all that water and stuff in there, it would have been like three or four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and so we got all that for free and we got the land, which would normally have cost us a million dollars alone. So it was like a million dollar gift to us or more than that overall. It was wow. just incredible. So that was a really nice happenstance right during that time. We did have to go through the townhome approval, which was a bit of a challenge. And that was probably why the land prices were less. But we worked through all of those issues and then we built that building. We moved on to additional buildings beyond that. And actually the next project, something really interesting happened. I started learning probably the most important lesson and really the thing that started changing our business and really started to accelerate things was that I wasn't hiring the best people. In fact, in some ways, we were actually not. We were hiring sort of low-end people because we had a temp service that was helping us find people. Not the way to hire people. Don't use temp services in that regard. But what we ended up doing is we shifted our thinking and we realized that bringing on the very best people, they change things. They unlock doors for you that you didn't know could be unlocked. They make things happen for you that you didn't know could happen. And we revamped our pay structure. We started paying top of market, finding the best people. We have reevaluated all of our staff and most of them we let go and we rebrought on a much tighter, more incredible team. And that changed the game for us. At that point, we started doubling in size every year. What's crazy, most people think that hiring the best people is expensive. And it's true when you look at a cost per person basis. But if instead you look at a cost per unit produced, the best people are actually the least expensive because they outperform average by two to five to 10 times as much. And I've seen this over and over again. That's when things really started to change for our business. Wow. Wow. And you doubled year and year after year. And so you figured out this one mantra principle that the best people are the least expensive over time because they're the most productive over time. Great nugget. To give you some sense of the caliber, we will fly people in from other states to come work here during the week and fly them home. We have a guy who is a 2007, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone. Steve Jobs walks off stage and our employee follows that presentation on that same stage. That kind of person. In fact, last week we had our engineers stop by and they went through, it felt like an, a Tesla event. I'm not exaggerating where each engineer presented their like segment and the work they were doing, multiple of them are inventing totally new ways that construction is done. Literally no one in the world has done it. They're like creating these really crazy composite materials and things. The engineers actually got up and talked about how he has been working with the regulators and correcting the standard setting bodies analytics. That's how far the company has come. We are correcting the science behind what they're doing to set standards is incredible to see. But it's incredible to talk to you right now about this because you're lighting up and you're so alive full of energy and passion just talking about it. And when we started the conversation, you know, and even before we met today, it was, I didn't know if that was exactly the business I wanted to be in. And then you were born into construction in a very challenging circumstance in your first few years in. So I guess the question is, when did you develop this passion for the construction industry and what you do now, Mike? I've always been this way in that I want to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. 
And for me, it's younger years, is trying to figure out what that was. And I wanted nothing to do with the construction world. In fact, I went off to college for computer science, mathematics, management, virtual reality, and a variety of other things. It was my dad who kind of pulled me back into the business. But I wrestled with that for the first year or so. But what I realized is that we could take this small business and grow it to have that kind of impact, especially when you start to piece together the puzzle and understand that we can drive down the cost of construction. Right now, we're already achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in cost compared to other developers, and we believe we can achieve a 50% reduction in cost. But imagine what that means. That means someday your rent could be half or your mortgage payment could be half. And when I look at my life, if we can truly solve America's housing affordability crisis by driving down those costs by as much as half, to me, that is a life well lived, at least professionally. And my dad, as you know, died relatively young. And it really reminded me how short life really is. And so for me, I don't want to waste the minutes. I want to make the biggest positive long-term impact that I can. And everything just sounds so amazing uh, to get it, the costs down, to drive down how many families that's going to impact. I imagine that there are probably some big interests at play that might not want you to succeed or that are naysayers to this and may try to block it. I wonder, where do you think the challenge might come in? Where do you think the affront to what you're talking about, where are the challenges going to hit us? I wonder. Yeah. The concepts of how we solve this is pretty simple, right? We take the lessons from areas like manufacturing, apply it into construction. And there's a lot of like specific things we could talk about. But the biggest challenge is in the execution of that. Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to produce the system that builds the car, right? The manufacturing plant, the infrastructure that actually produces those vehicles. And it's the same in the world of construction. We're taking all of our profits right now and pouring it in time and attention and pouring into building the system, including manufacturing systems that are building housing. And that's the biggest challenge. And there's so much that goes into that. And the other thing to think about too, is that there is no one silver bullet. The reality is there are 10,000 little problems and we have to solve all 10,000 problems. And I can't do that alone. I'm just one person. The leadership team can't do that alone. We talk a lot about how you have to get everyone involved in the company to be part of solving those issues. I need the brain power of literally everyone to get through it all. And so there's a big part about building a culture that focuses on making these kinds of improvements as well. Mm, you're getting into a place I love to be talking about culture and getting everyone involved and to help and build it. Yeah, let's go into that place for a minute. So what types of things are you seeing or doing right now with your culture to help grow this, Mike? Yeah, I think honestly, the older I get, the more I realize that the mindset of the leader is a big chunk of what creates the culture because there's things that you do as a leader that are subconscious. To give you some example of this, we talk a lot about paying top of market. I never want payer benefits to be the reason why someone leaves. But before I really like believed that, I would still say it. 
But then there was an instance that came up and one of my leadership team members said, hey, I got this employee. They got a better offer. They're getting calls from recruiters with better offers. We're going to make this work and see how it goes. I just kind of like, yeah, okay, fine. That sounds good. But what I realized is because I wasn't passionate about it in that moment, I didn't look her in the eye and say, no, we really need to be fighting for people. Pay and benefits should never be the reason someone leaves. Just because I didn't say that when I should have, then she didn't really take it as seriously as she could have. And we ended up losing that good employee. And it really hit home like, no, I, in my heart of hearts, I've got to believe this because then it will bleed out of me more naturally when communicating to others. So I think that's a big part of where our culture starts. Another key element, and hands down, you can create half your culture simply by hiring the right people. <laughs> you bring on the wrong people, you can't shape that culture the way you want it. But if you bring on the right people, people that align with your values, it is so much more powerful. Another aspect is simply defining it. I mean, this is sort of culture 101, but unless you define it, unless it's really clearly said, this is what our culture is and this is what our culture isn't, then how do you know what that culture is that you're even shaping? And for us to give you some flavor of this, one of our core values is to be a genuine human. And maybe for like modern day companies or, you know, like a software company, it's not too hard. That Maybe that's not a distinguishing thing. In the world of construction, being a genuine human is a clear distinguishing difference between us and the vast majority of construction companies that are out there because they're rough and tumble kind of places. But that's powerful because when we're hiring, when we're firing, when we're promoting, we are looking well at all of our values, but we're looking at that value and it's helping spread the field on the candidates and the people that we bring in. Oh my gosh, there's so much more surveys, for example. We do surveys every six months. We get that feedback from our staff. And a lot of companies do surveys, but the key is to actually take real action. And so our first step is that when we get the survey results, we share those results honestly with their entire company. And that includes my results, which aren't perfect. In fact, my last scores went down a little bit. And we share all of that with the entire organization. And it's a bit embarrassing, right? But what we started doing last year is we now start sharing all of our results openly on our website. You can go read what people are honestly saying, the good, bad, and the ugly. And there's ugly in there, I promise you. It's kind of fun to read <laughs> on our website. But again, I don't want to be fake good. I want to be actually good. And step one to improving is saying, hey, hi, I'm Mike, and I got problems. And then we can take steps together to work to improve them. So I got a lot, but this is the most important thing to me that I think a lot about within our company. I love the absolute transparency here. It reminds me of Dalio's book, Principles, just complete radical transparency and you're sharing it all. I love it. I absolutely love it, man. I'm getting fired up, ready to go to the website and see it. It reminds me of a quote I heard of this morning, actually. Peter Drucker said that management is uh, knowing the right thing to do and leadership is actually doing those right things and you're doing them. And that's awesome to hear that. Well, so what might be an example when you get a piece of feedback, if you think back in the archive here, some feedback that you've received in a survey, because a lot of companies probably have surveys, but you got some feedback and you took action on it. What might be an example of some action you've taken from a survey, Mike? Yeah, I'll give you my action steps that I took away from my own results that I'm applying right now on the last survey. The last survey, people felt a disconnect from me. I mean, there's things that I do like orientation, follow-up orientation. We do events and things like that. 
but people didn't feel enough of a connection to me. And honestly, like my deep-seated weakness in this area is that I'm an introvert. I'd rather just sit at the computer all day. And so I have to change my mindset on that. The steps that I spoke and said everyone I was going to do and that I'm doing right now is I'm taking time and sounds basic, but it's so important, is just going on site, going to all the, we got a lot of the locations now, going to the different locations and just spending time chatting with people and like, where are you at? What are you dealing with right now? How can I help you, your world? Another kind of subtle corollary to that that I've learned is that part of the challenge is then you hear all these problems and like, oh shoot, now I got a massive list of things to fix. One of the things that I've kind of let myself go this time around is I don't have to be the one to solve all of them. I'm there to listen and to connect. And the magic, what I'm finding is that just by connecting and listening to enough people, I'm starting to have richer conversations in our leadership team meeting because now something comes up and I'm like, oh, you know what? So-and-so, they're having this problem over there. But if you made this change, that might solve their problem. Go talk to them. So that is the specific one that I'm working on this six-month period. Love it. And you say introvert. I wouldn't be able to tell just by speaking with you. This seems like super comfortable, easy, natural. How easy or hard or challenging is it for you to get on the microphone and speak in public or speak on podcasts, Mike? What's that like for you? You know, for me, I've done so much of it now. It's just a skill that I've learned that it's not really a big deal. But I remember the first time I spoke in public, and I've done quite a bit of it now since, but the first time I was so bad that the leader that happened to be there was just a small group. They never invited me back to speak again. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so um, oh, and then man. that leader moved on with this group that I was a part of. And then I got invited back, ended up becoming the main speaker there and speaking on a regular basis. The interesting lesson I've learned, though, and this is more than just speaking, but whenever we start something, we're terrible at it. And that's okay. That's normal. Like when we're born, we can't walk, we can't talk, we can't read, we can't do anything. But why, when we get older, do we start to think like, oh, I need to start this thing off and be good immediately? When the reality is what I've kind of learned is that you just have to step in it and just know that you're going to be bad at something and then try, learn, grow, and improve. So podcasting was this way. The news media, like we were on CBS or ABC just called me yesterday. That kind of stuff, that was terrifying initially. I was terrible at it. But just getting in there, trying, learning, and growing has been a valuable asset. And I think the powerful thing to recognize there is to let yourself off the hook a little bit. You still need to practice. You still need to prepare. But it's not the end of the world if you screw up a little bit. It's part of the process. It's normal. It's okay. I'm so pleased to hear a successful, well-known leader come and talk about it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to, to learn through the process because there's this fear of especially as a leader in public of making a mistake and, and, and being embarrassed and a lot of ego might come out and it feels like I'm speaking with a, a genuine human who is willing to play the game transparently. And to me, that's a magnet. You know, to me, I'm really attracted to that. That's the kind of person I want to follow and hang with is the person that is just transparent, authentic, willing to make mistakes. I wonder when you're in the interviewing recruiting process, with new teammates, how do you bring them on to your culture and determine if they're the right fit or not so that you are hiring those right people, Mike? Yeah, so there's multiple levels that are involved. You know, the first thing, and I think one of the most important things we did was we actually hired on 
So we were a 100-person company, and we hired 16 recruiters at this point of our growth. Tremendous amount of energy and resources into making sure we do hiring well, because it's the most important thing you can do to have success in your business. And so then as part of that recruiting team, one of the interviews that people will have is an interview entirely focused on values. We have our five values, and then in with those values, they ask specific questions, behavior-based questions. So give me an example of a time when you did this that can illuminate whether or not you have those values. And so that team has gotten really good at eliminating a lot of people that don't meet our values. Then there's also skills tests in there. But then they go on, if they get a job opportunity, most people, not everyone, but most people will be on a two-week trial period. Certain positions, it doesn't really work well to do a trial period, but if we can, we will. And then at the end of those two weeks, it's the coworkers that make the decision of if you're on the team or off the team. Well, again, what are they evaluating? They go through each of the five values and they say, does this person, are they a hell yeah at every single one of these categories? And what's incredible is when you build up an incredible, amazing team, they become self-policing because what they find that they love about their team is that every single person is incredible. They push them to be better. They're inspired by the others on their team. And when they got that going on, they're not willing to sacrifice on quality when they're hiring. If we have 10,000 applicants that get with us, only about 100 of them will actually get an offer for our trial period. And out of those 100, only 40 of those will actually make it through. It's super selective. Mm. Thank you for that. That was a wonderful step-by-step behavioral questions to get to the bottom of it, skills tests for the roles, trial periods if we can, and then the team themselves self-policing because they're empowered to do that through the five values. So love love to hear it. Approximately how many people do we have right now in the organization, Mike, at any given time? Yeah, about 250 today. 250 today? Got it. Well, certainly I appreciate the nuggets that you've dropped here so far today. I feel compelled to ask a question around AI because it's a buzzword nowadays in 2023. I wonder if AI has any of what type of role that might play in some of these challenges that you're solving. You know, I think the scenario that we're thinking a lot about right now is we want to be able to provide a computer program, a site plan. So just a map of this lay of the site. And then it goes through and computes a bunch of varieties of options for different buildings based on the constraints and things that we've done. And then optimally lays out the building, creates all the architects and engineering drawings, all the way down the shop drawings, then computes out all the supply chain infrastructure and scheduling and the whole pipeline right from a site plan. That's our dream. And so we have a whole engineering team. What they're working on doing is to not be building buildings. Instead, they're designing buildings. They want to be designing the system that designs buildings. And so this is fairly new for us, but they're right now hiring on software developers and really building out that capability so that we can make that a reality. That's a key area. I think AI will be powerful for us. Wow. Wow. Well... Mike, let's say that we look forward into the future, let's just say one, two, three years, just a little bit down the way, and things are going amazingly well. You envision this future, you're bringing it to fruition, to reality. What do you see over the next few years 
that your company might be in the forefront of building and serving people with? Well, I'll give it out a little bit further. In 10 years, our dream is to reach 192,000 units under management with a construction pace of 60,000 units per year. And the reason that's important to get to a high construction volume is that the way we're hoping to solve housing affordability is by providing so many units to the marketplace that the prices start coming down, not just for our own residents, but for everyone nationwide. See, today we could offer lower rents, but that would solve housing affordability for a few thousand people. That's nice, but that's not nationwide. So we're taking those profits and putting it into the system. We're building the infrastructure that builds that housing. Over the next few years, the things that we're working on is expanding our factories. So we've got two factories right now. We're looking to build another one in Mexico, probably another one in Texas, and expand out what we're actually building in factory. We're working on developing even more new construction methods to drive down costs. We're building on an entire supply chain infrastructure. So we have people in China, Mexico, the United States right now. But we want to be delivering those materials directly from manufacturers to drive down those costs as well. And right now, our properties are only in Minnesota, but we are working to expand that into Texas at the moment. So that's also coming down the pike. Wow. So much opportunity to serve, well, ultimately your end user, your client, and also to serve, I mean, I'd say serve humanity. You know, to be able to take pressure off, make it better for people as costs are skyrocketing. You're figuring out how to make it half the price so that people can have affordable places to live. God, I love you for that. It's just amazing to hear this. Where might our listeners go to find out more about you and what you're doing and connect with you and your organization, Mike? Yeah, the best place to connect is going to visit our website, norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. And kind of two fun things on there right now. One is our new podcast called Zero to Unicorn. It's about the journey of small business growing to billion-dollar scale and what that is actually like, the good, bad, and the ugly. And then there is our Norhart Invest. We're offering people an opportunity to invest in what we're doing. It's pretty cool. Wow. Well, anyone that listens to this or sees you or connects with you and can just feel your authenticity is going to love you and love the mission. So I'm wondering if I'm here, I'm excited about this. I want to be a part of something that's a powerful why. And you certainly have shared that today. How easy is it to, to do something with you in investing? Because some people probably they hear the word investing and go to the website. That might be intimidating. Help it make it easy for us. How simple is that process for us, Mike? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that is the challenge in today's real estate market is that it's not only not simple, but it's disallowed for most of Americans to be able to invest in real estate. And the reason that is, is because it's, it's investor protections. But we went the more costly, kind of painful route. It's taken us a year to get approval from the SEC and hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of legal pages of documents. But because of all that work and the extra effort we went through, our opportunity will be allowed that anyone can invest in it. It doesn't matter who you are in America. Also, the first product that we're launching feels a little bit like a bank account. It's not actually a bank account. It's not FDIC insured. Be very clear on that. There is risk involved. Although there's steps that we take to protect yourself by putting our money at risk first before any of your money gets touched. But what it does is it lets you put money in, lock it in for maybe six to 24 months. You get to pick that term 
And the end of that term, you get your money back, but you get a high interest rate as a result. It's much higher than anything you can get a bank account. Wow. Wow. It's, man, this is exciting. It sounds like you're taking a private equity in the markets that, as you say, most people are not able to get to. And you have offered something that anyone might be able to invest in. So that sounds exciting. So norhart.com, and that's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. And that'll be here in the show notes, listeners, so you can check that out. Well, Mike, I've lost track of time just listening to you. You've wooed me, if you will, with just this amazing, authentic message. And it's just so amazing to be in your presence hearing this. I wonder, is there anything else that you'd like to rant on or talk about for a few minutes before we go to our famous lightning round? Is there anything else in your mind that you wanted to get out today? You know, I think one thing you touched on earlier, which is really valuable, is not being afraid to fail. And so at orientation, one of the things that we talk about Let me frame it this way. One of our staff members said they felt a little bit of concern because one of the things we're really careful on is that if you're not up to our values, we do let people go. And we support people really well on the way out, but we're very clear about that. And she said, well, Mike, with this policy, I feel a little bit like I'm walking on eggshells. Like if I screw up, if I make a mistake, it just means you're going to fire me. My response was this. How do we decide who to let go? She responded, what's our values? Exactly. Good job. Is there anywhere in our values that say, if you make a mistake, we're going to let you go? She looked through and went, no, you're right. In fact, it's almost polar the opposite. We want you to be trying new things, to challenge the status quo, to take initiative. We, in fact, we empower people to make the decision that they want to make, and we live with it. We run with what they want to do. And he said, If you are not making some degree of mistake, I have concern because that means you're not trying something new. And that's what we want our organization to be. We want our organization to be the one that's experimenting, that's trying, that's failing, but learning from that failure and iterating and improving quickly. And so that's really important to me to get right. Mm, Amazing. Amazing. I'm super excited to be able to share this episode with the world because you've spoken some amazing, transparent truths that you're practicing, you're living. And I wish that every company would live their values the way that you are holding your team and yourself publicly, transparently to those values. So thank you, Mike, for sharing that. Well, I would love to, uh, ding, 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 invite you to the lightning round of questions here as we go to wrap things up today. The first question is always, when you hear eternal optimism, what might that mean to you, Mike? You know, for me, it's not about being unrealistic with the world around you. It's recognizing that even when you're in a tough spot, that you can get out of it, right? If you take the right actions, take the next step, have positivity, look toward the future, that you can actually move past all of that. And if you get stuck in the opposite of optimism and that pessimism, you'll be stuck in that challenging spot forever. So yeah, I've always had a very optimistic view of the world and just not let myself get down with the situation I'm in. Thank you. What might be a book or a resource that has been important to you, either on your shelf now or in your past, that you might recommend to us? No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix. That's the book I was reading during the time of hiring and finding the best people. It shaped my view on that and really changed the game for us. Powerful book for me. And is there a show or a movie or some music that might get you inspired and get your blood boiling and taking some action, Mike? Anything there? 
Well, when I was in college, I was a huge fan of Linkin Park. And there's one song that they have that I've listened to something like 5,000 times. It was outrageous. <laughs> Just on repeat all day long. But it got me going. <laughs> nice. Nice. Linkin Park. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been amazing to have you on the show today and appreciate you for sharing your heart, sharing your business, sharing everything so far. It's been amazing. I want to give a little credit here. I believe that we were introduced to each other by our mutual friend, Gary. Mr. Gary, he was Mr. Gary Wilson who introduced us. So I want to give credit and say thank you, Gary, for making this introduction. And we certainly wish you the very best, Mike. And thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 